Kia ora everyone. Well, here we are at the final episode of Breakfast Chats. It's been a bit of a ride. 14 months and 6 episodes, all made during a pandemic where I quit my job, went freelance and generally tried to find myself. If you're interested, I posted a blog post reflecting on the past year, which you can read at kimcandraw.com, which is my illustration website. Anyway, haere mai and welcome to Breakfast Chats, my podcast where I talk to interesting people about the things they do, the things they care about, and what they're still trying to figure out. My final guest, at least for the foreseeable future, is none other than my husband's boss, Simon Bennett, who also happens to be the executive producer of a, you know, a tiny, tiny show called Power Rangers. Maybe you've heard of it. As I was listening back through the episode to write this introduction, I quickly realized that name-dropping some of the Kiwi TV shows that Simon has worked on was maybe the only appropriate way to introduce him. So here goes. Shortland Street, Outrageous Fortune, Almighty Johnsons, and most recently, the international children's show that is filmed right here in Auckland, Power Rangers. But Simon is so much more than the illustrious TV credits that follow his name. He's been deeply involved in the New Zealand theatre scene, writing and directing alongside top-tier names in the local performance world. After almost three decades in the theatre, TV and film industries, Simon has had his fair share of successes, failures and very strange stories. With mime artists for parents, that's right, mime artists, Simon tried to study law but ultimately made his way back to performance and storytelling via Toifakari, Bats Theatre and local theatre productions before moving into TV and film work. His is a very interesting life, and I am not the first one to encourage him to write a memoir of some kind. For now, though, you have this corridor, an hour long, but feel free to take breaks. So please, enjoy. Now, let's get stuck in. Simon Bennett, I'll just introduce you. Um, so you're a writer, director, producer who's working across theatre, TV and film in New Zealand for like the last 30 years or so? Pretty much. I yeah. think I started being a director when I was at university in about 1985. So, mm. but professionally since about 1988. But you're now the executive producer of the American TV show Power Rangers um, and you're the first Kiwi to helm this long-running television institution. Yes, um, um, yeah. which is... Which is, yeah, it's a privilege. Um, I feel very fortunate to be in this role. Um, also very lucky to be doing something that I really enjoy doing. It, ha it ha The glass hasn't worn off for me yet with Power Rangers. Um, I'm still enjoying every minute of it. The creative side of the show is a lot of fun and um, really complex, not at all easy. And that makes it a really great puzzle to be involved in and that you know it's, it's for kids so it's positive it's light it's fun um it's got a budget which most new zealand shows don't have because I've, I've spent you know 30 years in, in the new zealand screen industry and um yeah i really really love it so it's interesting trying to introduce alan my husband and tell people what he does and I'm always surprised that they don't know, particularly in New Zealand, but that they don't know what Power Rangers is. I guess just because it was like one of those shows that I grew up with. How do you explain Power Rangers to people who don't know what it is? Good question. I say that Power Rangers is an action-adventure superhero show aimed at kids from about five to about eight. And it's an American show and it's made for the international market. 
Um, the team of superheroes in every season of Power Rangers wear brightly colored primary color spandex suits and helmets, and they fight monsters and thwart evil. I suppose that that, that would be a, a potted summary of what the show is about. Yes. It, it, it really is about, you know, a team of friends, it's about teamwork. They're always teenagers or, or, or young adults, and they just they, they are bestowed or they are they prove themselves worthy of these powers and they become Power Rangers, which is a team-based superhero genre, and they fight monsters who are wearing rubber suits that have been designed and made in Japan because another weird thing about Power Rangers is that it is an adaptation of a Japanese um, genre called Super Sentai. Um, and every year um, a new Sentai season is produced and um, Power Rangers doesn't borrow the stories or the scripts, but it does borrow the props and costumes, both monsters and Power Rangers, because they are quite extraordinary. The um, the design imaginations of the, um, the the people at Toei who make Super Sentai. Um, part of the message of the show was um, inclusivity. Um, the teams of Power Rangers were always multi-ethnic, so a lot of people could see themselves represented in that team. The idea was companionship, teamwork, working together to solve problems. That's that's always been part of the ethos of the show. So what might surprise people in New Zealand, especially if they're not familiar with Power Rangers, is that firstly, Power Rangers have been running for a very long time. You're now, the 28th season of Power Rangers is now streaming. 29th. On Netflix. 29th is well, now well, streaming on Netflix. About to, yeah. Or about to. Mm. Um, so that's a long period of time. But um, secondly, that Power Rangers actually has quite a strong adult fan base <laughs> grew up with i presumably grew up with power rangers um but the moment you start scraping away at it there's like power rangers forums youtube channels dedicated to it like there's a there's a power rangers convention as well i'm pretty sure yeah so there are several actually um although i think they've become virtual due to covid and in, in recent years it's, it has a big following, e even though the show is made and has to work for kids who are, um, you know, five to eight year olds. It also has to work for the fans and, and um, people collect the toys and they have shelves and shelves and shelves of um, Power Ranger figures and, and um, they get custom things and, made like yeah, yeah. helmets and suits. Actually, I have a question. So uh, there are a lot of fans where people do quite strongly identify, you know, it's quite a strong part of their identity. But I'm just thinking. Just as Doctor Who has the Whovians, does Power Rangers have a fan word like I am a? Uh, Ranger Nation. Ranger Nation. Right. <laughs> um, I've done some. I've done some sort of speaking at online conventions aimed at um, adult Power Ranger fans, and you know the, the the publicity and PR people at Hasbro kind of pro provide a script, and you have to say "Hello, Ranger Nation." That's the first thing you have to say. I love it. It's been adopted Essential. as a show. I I still really enjoy watching Power Rangers. Um, so, w what's something that you kind of that you really appreciate about those adult fans? I think they they don't let you get too slack. They're, they okay. they know, a lot of them know the show and have watched it for many, many years. So they know the continuity because they've been with it since the start. So they they their level of scrutiny actually forces us to um, work very hard to be authentic and consistent with the, um, the law and the stories that we're telling. And I do like hearing what is working and what isn't. Because when you're when you're when you're making something, 
writing and making something, it really is all about wanting to affect the audience in a particular way, to take them on a particular journey. And when I used to work in theatre, which I loved, and you sit in the audience as a director sweating in terror, um, but you can feel the engagement of the audience with what's yes. happening on stage. Yeah. You can feel when it when it intensifies, when it relaxes, when it's released in laughter or when an audience gasps in surprise. So it's very um, immediate and visceral, that kind of um, engagement. But yeah. with um, screen work, because it's an artifact that you're making and when it's finished, you send it off and then months later, and you people hope that might people view like it. it. Yeah. The, the, Twitter is a good way to gauge whether what you the, the way you hoped it would affect the audience and um, en- engage them, whether that's working or not, and you you can note the things that don't quite land, and you can note the surprises in terms of the way mm. audience receive things, and you can note what is working, and it, that all feeds back into the kind of miasma that is the creative process, and hopefully um, that knowledge makes the next thing you do a little bit better. Same with anything that you put out there, like working in marketing and comms and like user experience and stuff. The biggest question that I always ask is like, but they'll say something and I'll ask, but how do you know, like you're making this decision, but how do you know that that's the right one? It definitely, it definitely benefits to have your kind of, um, your hand on the pulse kind of thing, like being able to engage with people and check back in. I think so, because what we do is fundamentally communication. And if you aren't, observing the person or the people that you are communicating with, then it's very one-sided. It's like having a completely one-way conversation. And I think, you know, whatever art form you work in or craft, if it's drama, if it's to do with stories, then you need, you need that feedback. You need to, you need to gauge what's working and what's not. And obviously the more experience you have, the longer you've been doing something, the more of a kind of toolkit you build up, which is based on experience. So your instinct about what will work and what won't is more finely tuned. But you can still do things that are catastrophic misses. I um, co-wrote Shorten Street, the musical, which was a a big stage show three years ago with Guy Langford, who ended up as a staff writer on Power Rangers. We spent two, three years working on that. Uh, In fact, that was the thing that um, really kept me going through the the paid work drought that I mentioned previously was that that, that we were... Yeah, we were writing and developing. We were not, you know, it wasn't paid work, but we were just doing something because we loved it and believed in it. And Did that feel um, like quite but, a long time, three years to develop that? Was that like in terms of writing something or developing something, was that quite a long chunk of time? It was a long chunk of time, particularly for a theatre show. Um, I mean, it wasn't full time. We came and went and, you know, I had other short gigs in the middle of it that would take me away from it and I'd come back. But we did spend, I would say, a solid year in this room working on the script. Yeah. And then we we did probably four, maybe five workshops as we were writing it with a, with a group of actors, interrogating the script and um, doing invited read, readings for invited guests and soliciting feedback that we would incorporate into the next draft and, and so on. It was a very rewarding and quite careful, quite thorough development process and yeah Auckland Theatre Company wanted it as their end of year Christmas show eventually because they were okay. one of the one of the groups that um, came and so it was an ATC Christmas musical and what we were going to do was uh, it was going to do six weeks 
at Christmas in Auckland. And then Guy and I were going to produce a national tour of the same production right. um, in, in the new year. And um, we opened. It had a cast of, I think, about 14. It was a big show for New yeah. Zealand standards. It had a, a live band, something like 20 songs that Guy had written. Um, wow. Gr- great choreography from Liv Tennant. We opened and it had, you know, rave response. The audience laughed and laughed and cheers. It was just a, it was just a great feeling in the theatre on opening night. But also on opening night, Lester McGrath, who was the um, CEO of Auckland Theatre Company, sort of said to me quietly, this show isn't selling, you know, it's not going to go. And they knew, they know the formulas, they know by before opening night, based on advanced ticket sales, whether something's going to work or not, because wow. um, word of mouth can only sell a certain number of tickets uh, yes. between opening and the end of the season. And um, the show ended up bombing, basically it didn't sell. And what we discovered even during that first six weeks. No, no, no. It, even even once it was up and running, right. What we found was that the people who saw the show loved it. Yeah. And they tried very hard to talk their friends and family into coming to see it a second time with them, but none of them wanted to because right. the proposition of a musical based on a, a TV medical soap was a pretty much unsellable proposition. I mean, we we thought that that yeah. a, that a, a parody of something that is such a, a New Zealand institution, you know, an affectionate parody, which is what it was um, with music, would be a surefire success. And, and not just us, but Auckland Theatre Company, and we had investors on board for the tour. Everyone had faith in it. But fundamentally, the people who spend $70 to $100 a ticket to go and see musical theatre hate Shorten Street. And the people who love, love Shorten Short Street, Street. Don't go to the theatre. That was that was yes, the, that was the, the, the problem we encountered. Oh no! Yeah, yeah. So it was it was it was a yeah it was a sad learning curve. Mm. Still remain hugely proud of what we achieved with that show because you know the show itself and the production itself I think were, were great and the cast was fantastic and the script was finely polished. There was nothing wrong with what we did. It's just we made something that people didn't want, and you get that. That, that was yeah. what I was saying before oh. about failure in the creative industries. I wasn't too kind of crushed because I'd been doing theatre for 30-something years and I'd had a couple of large-scale disasters in my past. Right. So it wasn't the first time for me that something had fallen over. But theatre, it's a mugs game. Um, <laughs> I love it dearly, but it is so risky. And in yeah. New Zealand, it is such a niche activity that anyone who is still working in theatre and committed to it and managing to carve a, a career path out of it, I just take my hat off to them. It is so, so hard. For people who are thinking about getting into, into the industry, whether it's an actor or a director, a producer, whatever it might be, do you have any advice for them about how to, how to actually carve a living in the way that you've managed to do over the last 30 years? A, a lot of it is luck. Okay. I, I, I was very lucky. I think you have to be good at what you do. That's a given. You have to be trustworthy by the people that you work with. Your colleagues have to have faith in you because that's how you get work. But you have to build a network of people who like what you do and want to work with you. The advice I tend to give to people who want a career in you know, the arts, whether it's theatre or, or, or screen, is you have got to make work. You can't wait for the opportunity to come you've got to get together with like-minded people and make your own short films on the weekend even if you shoot them on an iphone you know you, you you've got to write your stories you've got to get it out there and get it seen by people and build 
a network of um, a cohort of colleagues who share your ideas and vision and, and you enjoy working with and who enjoy working with you. And then also work your way up so that the um, you, you've got something that you're proud of that you can use as a calling card. And then you have to do the hard yards, which is really about targeting key gatekeepers who you can get a meeting with and who you can share your work with. But it, it is an incremental, gradual process. And all the time you're, you are, you're trying to um, find these opportunities and carve a career, keep making because mm. cre- creative people are, are makers and they're story makers and telling stories is what we do. And you only get good by doing. You, yeah. you don't get you don't get good by waiting or by um, spending years trying to get one project off the ground, get, get, get your dream feature film off the ground. You can spend five years in development hell and not make a single thing in that time. And you're not getting better as a practitioner by doing that. Yeah. Yes, you could have your feature project that is in development hell, but at the same time, you need to be doing plays at the basement or, or uh, you know, script readings with friends or it's, it's yeah. that. It's constant work, that honing your craft, learning what works, what doesn't and also finding your voice and 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 finding what stories you want and need to tell no totally particularly nowadays there's so many different ways to learn things there's tons of youtube content tons of people doing analysis sharing their kind of their tips tricks of the trade whatever it might be would you still recommend going to somewhere like toy for party or a, a different school like that to learn the craft first or would you think you have just as good a chance kind of just like giving it a go i would recommend it i think there are always examples of people who haven't done that who have still um done extremely well what i think something like toy for does or, or the actors program in auckland or any other south seas and any other kind of um training school does is it gives you two or three years to apply yourself to the craft and find your voice exclusively i, I found my drama school experience incredibly difficult um, because I auditioned as an actor and I went through the actor training scheme for two years and I'm not really an actor. I always wanted to be a director, um, but there was no director training program available back in the 80s. And um, I was encouraged by my Victoria University lecturers to apply for Toy Fakari. So I did. And I said at my interview, when they asked me why I wanted to do this, I said, I, w- I want to work in the theatre, which you know came from the heart because it was true. And so they took me on. But because I'm naturally an introvert and quite a shy person and physically very self-conscious, most of what I was asked to do as part of the actor training had me screaming on the inside every single day. Oh, thank goodness I you like think... being a director. <laughs> well, having been through that stuff, Mm. Um, makes made me a better director because right. when I see an actor encountering blocks or struggling or suffering or beating themselves up because they don't feel what they're doing is good enough, I've actually been there myself and I'm in more of a position, I can't guarantee it, but I'm in more of a position to be able to help that actor either through or around that block Yeah, because, because I know what it's like. I, yeah. I fell into drama by accident um, when I was at university because it was just some spare credits in my law degree because I was doing a, I was doing a, All right. a, a law and English degree um, <laughs> at Vic. At Vic, <laughs> and um, as soon as I discovered drama, I quit law, and that became everything, much to my parents' dismay. And I think it was I was well into my forties before I stopped getting the "When are you going to get a real job?" Um, yeah. conversations. <laughs> 
Oh, goodness. <laughs> Despite the fact that my parents um, went to drama school, trained as actors yes. and um, ran a mime company. I will admit that that was, I mean, all the work that you've done is fantastic, but I'm also so intrigued by like what it's like growing up with parents who run a mime company. In your opinion, what is more restrictive, developing a TV show around existing footage or communicating without words through the art of mime? <laughs> oh, I think the TV show is more is is way more challenging. Um, the art of mime is well, it's a very very specialist and very niche thing. I mean, when you're making something like Power Rangers, you're making a mass market thing for millions of people. When you're creating a mime show, then you're lucky if a hundred people are sitting in the audience watching you. So it, it is quite different in that regards. I think the thing about mime that my father loved is that there are no language barriers because it's physical storytelling. It doesn't involve words. So um, he was able to take the shows to China, Mexico, Zimbabwe, um, the Pacific Islands, Russia, just all over the world. And they didn't have to change the show because it was um, it was without words. So yeah. that was one of it. That was one of its strengths. Um, I was mortified and deeply embarrassed to be the child of my artists, particularly when they came and performed at my school. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Cause how old were you when they, so they had a company called Mime International. Um, when did they start miming like straight out of drama school? So did you grow up with it or did they start no. like peak, pu- you know, puberty <laughs> level where you're just the most kind of in between. Um, I think they did a bit of mime at a drama school, but they also had teaching qualifications. So my father was a lecturer at Teachers College in in drama. He was a drama lecturer and my mother was a teacher. They both were drama specialists because of their training. And um, he applied for and got a job in New Zealand from the UK at Wellington Teachers College as head of drama when George Webby, who was the former head of drama, went to run Toy Fukari New Zealand Drama School. So my father got that job. And as a family, we moved to New Zealand um, for him to do that because opportunities were kind of drying up in the UK at the time. And it was initially for a year. And then it looked as if it was not going to continue. And so my parents developed the mime company and, and a traveling puppet theater idea as well as a way of actually being able to keep work should my father's job um, fall over. But it didn't. Okay. He got he got renewed. He got tenure. And then he incorporated the mime within his teaching at Teachers College. And his, his company of performers were basically um, Teachers College students who showed an interest in mime. It was something because he was you know, charismatic and enthusiastic and they got to travel. Um, and it was all part of the, the, the teachers college course, although it was very extracurricular and not something he should really have been doing. And he wasn't, I think at all interested in actually the teaching side of things. Um, it was a way of actually being able to pursue his love, which was performing. And also he had this kind of fantasy sort of self mythologizing fantasy, I think of traveling the world, being intrepid, taking mime to the masses and at the time when he was in these various places because he was quite an anxious insecure person he was very stressed out and unhappy and generally hungry with low blood sugar and in a state of mild panic 
it would be just this most amazing experience in hindsight. And they started in 1975 when I was about 11, I guess, 10? No, okay. 10. I'd have been 10. And so they came and performed at my primary school, and then they came and performed at my secondary school. And this carried on going right through my teenage years into my early adulthood. And, you know, one of the things I did um, post-drama school was take over the lease of Bats Theatre in Wellington and get that up and running as a, as a going concern. That was my post-drama school project. And I think my father came and did a performance season there where there was a parent and two kids in the audience, and that was it. The parent had to take the kids to the loo halfway through the performance. <laughs> <laughs> and did your dad go, we'll just wait till you get back to reserve? I think they did, because you can't perform in an empty theatre. <laughs> and it was always kind of an interesting thing, because my mother was deeply critical of the mime, because really, you know, by world professional standards, it was amateur. And I think for me too, just, you know, having your parents in full makeup um, performing in front of this all boys rugby based school was just like the ignominy was extraordinary. What is and my it was, life? Yeah. Yeah. Part of why I went into law was to get as far away from performance as possible. Um, but yeah. something dragged me back and I ended up. Um, Couldn't run away. Yeah. Being a director. And I, you know, I do acknowledge that. I learned quite a lot um, from those years with the mime company. I used to do um, uh, lighting and sound. So I, I, mm. I would work as a technician with them and rig the lights and operate lights and um, travel quite often with them. And um, I did that Facebook post about the um, Zimbabwe tour we did, which was well after I had established myself as, as a theatre director. It was um, 91, I think. And I went as as tour manager and technician, basically because my, my parents were not in a particularly good state at the time and needed looking after. And they were just throwing themselves into Zimbabwe, which we didn't know anything about. And it was a fairly um, unsettled part of the world at the time under Robert Mugabe. Yes. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and um, we were hosted by Zimsun Hotels, which was at the, the state hotel chain so we we toured hotels around the country performing in their kind of cabaret type um nightclub type venues which was completely inappropriate for the type of show that we were doing and also in schools which was more appropriate except for african kids who'd never encountered white face mine before it was just like baffling, on another level of yeah it was just baffling to the audience yeah completely white the photo I posted on Facebook, I took from backstage of the audience watching a mime show um, in a school. And just the looks on their faces of just, <laughs> what is this? Well, that that kind of, that made, this is a question I wanted to ask because, so growing up in the 90s, mime was not exactly popular. Shockingly, I don't know a lot about mime, actually. And as you've been talking, I'm like, wow, I really don't know a lot about mime. I had no idea there was a mime festival in London a lot of us will be aware of mine, kind of just the classic, like, oh, I'm trapped in a box or I'm going in a lift. What would a mime show, like what's a story that your parents' troupe would kind of play out? Most of what they did was a series of short sketches. Okay. So they would be like three to five minute pieces uh, and there'd be a set list, like, like a gig 
and and these are the and it would be pinned up backstage. These these are the sketches we're doing this show, mm. and um, they'd be one or two or three people pieces, and they'd be simple little stories. Like there was one called Paris Cafe that um, was in the repertoire for the entire. 20 odd years that they were doing mine, which was about, you know, a tourist sitting at a Paris cafe with a surly, surly waiter and things not going well over the course of their attempt to order coffee and croissants. Um, my father had a, had a piece called Going for Gold because he was an athlete. He was a race walker. He, he, he tended to right. gravitate towards the more embarrassing um Things. Not only mine, but it was a race walker. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So this was about someone failing to achieve Olympic success. And he did a piece called The Great OE, which was about when, when I was 14 um, in, the, in the fourth form at school, he got a scholarship from the French government to go and study at the Lecoq School in Paris while my mother and family stayed back in New Zealand. So he went over for a year and studied mine in, in Paris. And this was, a, this, was, this was a story about his experience traveling to Paris and finding it all a bit grim and having to come home early because he actually was not well equipped to live on his own for a year. Other pieces, Washing the Dog. It was about washing a dog, the flea oh. circus. It was about a flea circus. Um, they, they did a couple of really cool things. There was a, there was a, a piece called Tribute to Polivka, which was an original piece. Polivka was a Polish, famous Polish clown. Mm. And my father had a photo of him with a chicken. And so it was basically a little cautionary tale about nuclear annihilation. It was set in, in, in a sort of nuclear wasteland and a friendship between uh, a tramp played by my father and a mute young woman played by my mother. And they bonded over a pet chicken that he had in the cage. It was a real chicken called Henny Penny. There was, a, there was an air raid siren and they both took cover off stage. And then my father come on and the chicken was dead because we had a dead chicken and a live chicken and we'd substitute them. That was terribly sad. And the young shell-shocked mute woman couldn't understand that the, chick, that the chicken was dead. And then there was another air raid alert and they cleared the stage. And then my father came back on carrying the body of the young woman. So it was a very serious kind of sad post-apocalyptic tale. And it reminds me, yeah tragic studio ghibli um uh, um, um over the fireflies Grave, yeah similar themes um, oh god uh, yeah so and it was it was genuinely devastating but it did mean that on tour we had to have a live animal and a dead animal um, at all times at all times <laughs> and, like a real and, dead um, animal like you yeah, we'd keep it in the freezer or in the fridge wherever we were staying. Like not plucked. It's not like a raw chicken. No, no, it had to it had to look identical to the live chicken that we were also traveling with. And we did like, a tour of the west coast of the South Island where they didn't have any chickens, so we had to do it with rabbits. Um, but we didn't want to kill one of the rabbits because we were, we were presented with two live rabbits when we arrived. I was about the, to ask, did you any meaning mining mo which one was going to play the dead rabbit and which one was going to be the live one? It's pretty awful now from an animal welfare point of view. And we, I'm sure it would never happen today, but they had to yeah. get the vet to sedate one of the rabbits every, every night. So it would appear to be dead. So instead of killing it, you just sedated it. <laughs> oh my God. Oh no, that would not fly nowadays. But no. Wow. 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 So were these the stories that your parents performed to like these Zimbabwean children, like the nuclear, yes. the, the chicken, the yeah, ca yeah. Paris cafe, like did they? Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. 
I think the the the, the tribute to Polivka was kept for the adult performances, which they yes, would do in the yeah. evening, and the the kids shows were much lighter and and they were more along the lines of um, flea circus and washing the dog. And um, but the Paris Cafe did feature for kids, and they just had no idea what they were watching, oh, which like... is completely outside their experience. And it is based on the Marcel Marceau white faced French style of mime. What they did, right. there are different types of mime, and this was their particular thing is it's about creating the illusion when uh, with the with the performer's body of stuff that's happening when there's actually nothing there and telling mm. a story. It's, it's very physical. And when it's good, it can be quite amazing and it requires a huge amount of precision, physical precision. And my father was good, um, but a lot of the people who worked with him were still very much protégés and learning. And he was a fabulous mentor. Like he inspired a lot of people who went on to have careers as performers. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, my, something else about mime too is it's very much a, a fringe kind of activity. It's aligned with clowning, with juggling, with busking. It hasn't been mainstream for a long time. I think back in the 60s, Marcel Marceau was popular in the 50s. And there was a short period there uh, where to be a mime artist was quite a cool thing. David Bowie did mime. Um, back when he was starting out, he was a mime artist and used to incorporate mime in his stage that performances. That doesn't surprise me. <laughs> hearing that. So, so yeah, it did, it did have a pop culture alignment back in the very early seventies, which was about when my parents started. But by the time they were doing it in the eighties and the late eighties and into the nineties, I think mm. generally it was deeply uncool. But it provided a lot of very positive inspiration and mentorship for people who, as I said, went on to do extraordinary things like Nina and Walla Walla and Fergus Aitken, Pearl Sidwell. You know, they're just they're just people who've been through the mime, who've actually gone on to be dancers or, or theatre makers at the top mm-hmm. of their game in, in their own right. So th- there was a lot of value in it for those people. And I learned a lot about precision and timing from watching performance after performance after performance and knowing what was a good performance versus what was a sloppy one and and why and watching because because I was in the, in the operating lights in the auditorium for every show so I could see how the audience was engaging or not with what was happening on stage and working yeah. out what what worked and what didn't the other thing about it was was that the the lens through which most things were projected was a deeply naive slightly sentimental very childlike worldview which was my father's apart from the political one which obviously was bleak but most of the most of them were romantic childlike naive and and I grew up you know liking punk and my sensibilities were much more um cynical and hardened hardened different um Mm. I I I like the young ones I liked edge of darkness I liked I liked irony irony and cynicism as opposed to uh childlike and naive so Mm. completely different taste at that time because when when you are an adolescent you're trying to work out who you are as opposed to who your parents are I think and I guess responding to different political climates like growing up when you did the cold war like had just come out of that you know Berlin wall all of that stuff whereas maybe coming out of this is complete speculation but maybe coming out of the world wars your parents were like naivety and optimism was maybe quite surprised I think that's that's absolutely right I think so I think my father would have liked the world to be a rosy happy place. He he had an ideal in his head, which was not, I think, where the real world was at. But when he looked back on performing in Tonga or Fiji, 
like they performed in some countries like in a, 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 a football stadium they'd be on a, a small platform with 8,000 people in a grandstand and this is the big screen TVs didn't exist no no TVs <laughs> so so their, their their physical expression had to be huge it is quite colonial as well I think that kind of mindset I think I think he saw himself as as the the bringer of light yeah. and gentility to these these sort of slightly untamed worlds there's some quite dodgy um, politics behind some of it he would not have seen that because no, that was the time with that hindsight was of the you kind of like can see that he was uh maybe believing he was bringing something that he believed didn't exist where he was going yes which is, yes a, a pretty colonial mindset yeah, we used to go on. Um, we used to go on what were called credit trips, which were kind of teachers' college student away trips. This is back in the early seventies, where Wellington Teachers College was a very liberal kind of arts-based institution. It was more about learning self-expression. It was about learning how to teach. But very different to when I went there then. Oh, did you go to Wellington Teachers College? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Very, very different. But they went on what were called credit trips. And when I was sort of 10, we went on tours of um, hospitals, prisons and marae around the North Island doing performance right. with the students in a bus, you know, sleeping on classroom floors and marae and um, just generally being hippies. Um, Can't imagine them getting anything like that now. But a disgruntled student who was not allowed to go on the trip because he had basically been uh, excluded from teacher's college for some reason decided it would be a, an interesting way of having revenge to tell the police that we were basically supplying drugs to the prisons around the country. Oh, my God. <laughs> so we were, we were busted. Um, there was a roadblock just north of Wellington by the... Um, Foxton race course and everyone got strip searched and all the props and stage scenery got pulled apart and amazingly they didn't find a single thing the chance of them not finding anything was so slim but there was nothing but we were tailed by very obvious undercover uh, cops everywhere we went around the country <laughs> I mean there are stories there are stories there and I, and I was 10 I remember it vividly but my parents must have been terrified Right. You did, as you said, you kind of ran away to law school as far away as you could get from miming and any sort of performance. But then you ended up back at Toy Fakari. What motivated you to go to Toy Fakari in the end? And what motivates you now to kind of get up every day? And has it changed since, you know, when you mm. first started professionally in theatre? It really was a, a flash of lightning. It was really was discovering a vocation when I was at Victoria University. I did drama studies basically because my then girlfriend was doing drama studies and it meant that we'd be doing a class together to fill out my BA as part of my BA LLB double mm -hmm. degree I was doing. And I just loved it with, and I hadn't expected to. I fell in love with plays of Samuel Beckett particularly. And just because I love them so much, I put together with a bunch of fellow students an evening's program of Beckett shorts, directed them and what I found was when I was directing, I lost sight of myself. It was an absolute loss of self-consciousness and self-awareness. And I felt like I was flying. So that's what I mean about it being a, um, a vocation, being like, like being hit by lightning to the point where nothing else mattered. And I dropped the law. I committed myself to, to theatre. I did the stage three production course, um, which went 
the entire course is geared towards directing and, and putting on a piece and acting as technician and sound designer for another student's piece. I did that, still loved it. And at the end, the, my lecturers basically said, have you ever thought about directing for a living, being, being a professional director? And I hadn't considered it, to be honest, because I didn't know there really was such a thing or that I would fit into it. And I said, no. And they said, well, we think you should. And um, we think you should think about going to drama school and we will write a letter of introduction to George Webby, who was running the drama school, which they did. So they nudged me into applying. And at the time I knew, you know, a lot of my cohort at university were also trying to get into drama school. It was very competitive. They only took 10 students a year and, you know, wow. four or five hundred would apply. And so I, I, I went and I auditioned and I'm not sure I was very good at the audition, but they must have seen something about my commitment or the letter from the staff at Vic, I don't know. But anyway, mm. they, gave, they gave me a place. They let me do some directing while I was training to be an actor. And that kind of kept the enthusiasm alive. And then between my first year and second year at Toy for Cowrie, because it was only a two-year course back then, I directed the Summer Shakespeare up at Vic, which was King Lear, with Andrew Lang, who is a dear friend and also in my year at drama school as stage manager, and Simon Elson, who is a technician doing sound and we took over the quad at Vic and we had smashed cars and chandeliers made out of broken bottles and scaffolding. And it was just like, like it was, it was a um, junkyard. We turned the quad into and the university didn't like it at all. I mean, it didn't, I don't know what it looked like then, but it didn't look great when I was there. So no, no, it was terrible. It's it's just a, it was a concrete quad. I was very upset that they renovated it when my sister went to uni. It was not nice. I've still got pictures and I, I loved what we did in, in that production. It was the first time I worked with Katie Wolf, who played Regan, who I worked with a lot. And she went through drama school. Simon Else and I went on to start Bats Theatre together. A lot of very important connections were made for me on that show. And also doing a large scale Shakespeare as my summer job between years at, at Toy Fukari. I, I was really lucky to be mm-hmm. given that opportunity. And then basically post Toy Fukari, Bats Theatre. And I just was so hungry to direct shows. And the reason for starting up Bats was because I was an unknown and there was nowhere else that would take me in, would let me, would let me direct. So I thought, well, okay, that's the way it is. I'm going to set up my own theater where I can direct anyway, Yeah, which is, which is what we did. I, I did back to back work, you know, Shakespeare's, um, New New Zealand plays, Blue Sky Boys was a huge success with, um, Tim Baum and Michael Galvin playing the Everly Brothers. And we transferred from 92 seat Bats Theatre to the St. James in Wellington. This was, this was in mm. 1990. So we went from a, from a 92 seat theatre to a 1200 seat theatre. Um, and then I started getting offers to go and work as a, as a gun for hire at places like, um, Centrepoint and down in Christchurch and traveled around the country. And then when the Mercury folded in Auckland, it looked like there were a lot of opportunities up here in terms of theatre, because the funding that had gone to the Mercury was going to be um, reallocated Mm. amongst Auckland companies. So for two or three years, I did a lot of shows at the Watershed Theatre in Auckland, which did some work that I was really, really proud of. And all that time, it was for me, it never stopped being the most fun thing ever. I mean, there were some shows that were less rewarding than others. And it was usually when I would find a collaborator that I couldn't connect with or that there were blocks there that I couldn't overcome. Mm. And the work was kind of ossified a little bit as a result. 
but there were also a lot of, for me, really groundbreaking and exciting pieces of theatre. It was and remains my favourite thing, that sense of flying that I found and losing my sense of self and doing what I have no doubt is what I do best. Because mm-hmm. it's you talked before about a sense of perfectionism. I, I have that as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, directing is one of the few things where I actually have no doubt I'm very good at it. And that enables me to throw myself into these environments, despite being a shy introvert and um, take charge, which is which is what, what you have to do as a director. I, I still love it. And got an opportunity to train as a TV director through South Pacific Pictures in 95 because they underspent their budget on Shorten Street one year. So they set up a director and writer training course the first turnaround soap because they needed directors and writers. And that course kind of changed my career path because there were two jobs at the end of it. And I was lucky enough to get one of them. And initially I was on a pretty dire kids show called Riding High about horses and kids made for Germany. Oh. And then six months later, um, I found myself on Shorten Street as a director, which yeah. I really enjoyed. That would yeah. that was ni- 96. And then 97, I was offered the producing Shorten Street job, having directed it for just over and you, were, you were at Shortland Street for quite a while as well. On and off. I was connected with Shortland Street for about 19 years, although I was doing other things as well. Sort of seven of those years, I was full-time producer. After my first stint as producer, I thought, I'm sick of this. I'm going back to theatre. So I set up um, what we called the New Zealand Actors Company with um, Robin Malcolm and Tim Baum and Katie Wolfe. Mm-hmm. And we set ourselves up as a large-scale touring company, working with a lot of actors who had high profiles from TV and trying to actually regenerate theatre as being like a um, rock and roll experience, demythologizing it for um, people in regional regional towns and making it like a gig that people would go to. Mm. Um, and we had a lot of success with A Midsummer's Night's Dream, which we toured nationally, and with a Roger Hall play about farming called The Way of Life. And then we did my second production of King Lear at the International Festival in Wellington in 2002, um, which bombed. It was not well received. Basically, it was too it was too much a niche avant-garde show compared to the very populous things that we had been doing. And right. um, some of the creative choices we made appalled the audience. We had, uh, uh, it was Queen Leah, L-E-A-H. We had a female Leah. There was a lot of gender reversal in the piece. Yeah, and, and audiences were pretty repelled by some of the choices we made. I mean, it's a very dark play. It's a terrible yeah, tragedy. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I was really, again, I was really proud of it. And then mm-hmm. it was one of those things where it felt good in the rehearsal room. We did two previews and we did technical rehearsals of the show at Sky Theatre in Auckland before we went down to the Opera House in Wellington. And we got standing ovations both times for the previews. So it was pretty confident we were on to a hit. And then you went and to then, Wellington. Opening night in Wellington, just this, this feeling of shock and horror in the audience at what they were witnessing. And then just after interval, the lighting desk froze and wouldn't work. So the entire stage remained in basically twilight for the entire second half of the show. And I had to leave the theatre and I lay down under the stage just in the state of absolute horror and shock. And then I think it was Linda Herrick gave us the most scathing review I have ever seen after we opened in Wellington. And then she wrote a review in the Herald in Auckland of our Wellington performance, damning it even more. And we were 
transferring from Wellington back up to Auckland to do Sky just City. And, the well, ticket ticket sales just stopped. Right. And then she wrote a third article about it, just as we were about to open in Auckland. And it was unbelievable, the 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 vitriol that we encountered. And that, for me, was the lowest point in my entire career because something I had confidence had not registered with an audience and, in fact, had repelled them. So I oh. didn't understand that. And I went back into television with my tail between my legs and vowed never again with theatre. And I actually didn't even go to the theatre, I think, for about eight years after that. I was so badly stunned. I I couldn't go into the foyer of a theatre without feeling that people were looking at me and talking about me because of Leah. It was that level of um, of anxiety and horror. Quite traumatic. Yeah, it's it's like it's like a, an actor's bad dream. I think I lived the equivalent of a director's bad dream. You mentioned before that you know when when the engagement for the audience is great, it's really powerful. Then you get that immediate, in contrast to TV theater, you can get that yeah. immediate response. But it it must be absolutely gutting when it's the negative side of that coin. When, when when it's loathing and rage against what you are presenting, there's is, is the effect. And that, that wasn't really what you intended. No, no. I intended it to be confronting. It was definitely confronting. Our depiction of Leah as a as a as a abdicating monarch, and it was Geraldine Brophy was playing Leah, was that she was abdicating because she was experiencing some kind of um, ovarian cancer was kind of the backstory that we concocted. Mm. And she was bleeding throughout the second half of the show as she was wandering across the heath in a nightgown and the audience just could not cope with that. And then um, Cordelius, as opposed to Cordelia, her, her, her son, who dies at the end, played by Ian Hughes. She was nursing him. She was trying to breastfeed him, breastfeed his corpse as he was dead. And that wasn't well received either. Those are just two examples I of mean, the problems we encountered. Yeah, I mean, but it is confronting because it's happening in real life. I remember going to see mm. a show. I can't tell you the name of it because I'm not a huge theatre goer, but I would like to go see more shows. But I went to see this with the person I was dating at the time. And there's a moment where basically uh, one of the characters is descending into a kind of madness. And at one point she takes out her own, well, she, she stabs her own eyes, like she blinds herself. And it was very visceral. And afterwards I felt kind of shell-shocked because it was so, it felt very real and that someone would do that to themselves. So I can... I can kind of get it, but that also must be very hard as the person who made it being like, oh, no. Well, I, I still I still think that we did good work. I just yeah. think it was ahead of its time. Yeah. I also think that if it had been presented by some Czechoslovakian company, exactly the same production, it could have been received completely different. But it was, it was an example, I think, was on the receiving end to a certain extent of New Zealand's tall poppy thing. Um, who do these people think they are? Headlining at the International Festival, local shakes. Oh, you're headlining as well. Appalling, yes. Yeah, yeah. avant-garde sort of. Yeah. Trying. Whereas what I what I was known for as a as a showmaker really was crowd pleasers. Like my most Ah. successful shows have been comedies, and this was the exact opposite. Maybe a bit of whiplash. They were going in (laughs) being like, "Ah, Simon Bennett." Yeah, I think that's (laughs) got to be the point at some stage in my life where I give up trying to do serious stuff. (laughs) No, (laughs) I mean. I think it's, I again, it's that kind of just that missed sort of, it reminds me of what you were saying before about the Shortland Street musical, that kind of missed 
communication that missed um, mm. opportunity kind of thing where people were maybe uh, expecting one thing or not expecting something to be good or yeah so we've, we've now talked about two things that you were quite proud of and happy with that kind of bombed in terrible maybe unexpected ways is there something that you didn't have high hopes for that you thought oh it's moderately good and then you were totally whether it was theater or film or tv or whatever it might have been that kind of did really well and you were pleasantly surprised by? That's an interesting question too. Um, I've actually had shows that I have been slightly ashamed of doing that have done exceptionally well. Okay. Um, I don't know if I should name any because I'll probably cause offence. All right, I will. It was too so long ago. There was a show I did in Wellington at Bats called and it was very much, I think, derivative of Ladies' Night, which had been a phenomenon in the years just prior to that, Anthony McCartan and Stephen Sinclair, basically the centerpiece of the show was strip routines. It really, I think, needed a lot of further development, the show. The person who was producing it quit while we were in rehearsals. I wasn't quite sure why. He said, look, I just can't do this. I don't think the play's any good. Mm. And I found out later that the playwright, oh, I don't know if I should even be saying this. I found out later that a lot of the people who are working on the show were working on the show because they'd been paid in bags of wheat. I didn't know this at the time. <laughs> I I so almost feel like I really want to keep this in here, but I'll just like cut out. I'll like bleep the name of the play. Bleep the name of the play and, the and play we'll be fine. The, and the actors. Yeah, we'll exactly. The producer knew this. I didn't. And I suspect oh, that was okay. why he walked. Uh-huh. Fantastic people working on it. And it was, you know, it was, it was a flashy production because... I made very slick shows. I was good with transitions and lighting and sound and all that kind of thing. Mm. But I think it was hollow at its heart and right. it sold out. It was a hit. But people it was hugely successful. So that is the op- that, yeah, yeah. That is the opposite right. to me of the Lear experience, which is where you do something against your better judgment that you don't think is very good and it sells out. So I've had yeah. that experience. And then I've had the experience of shows that I've loved that have worked. And okay. the Midsummer Night's Dream that we did with the New Zealand Access Company is an example of that. It was a great production. Audiences loved it. I was able to develop it using a, an improvisation technique that I'd learned from an English director called Mike Alfreds, which I really fundamentally believe in, that it requires full commitment and buy-in from all the cast to be able to employ it to its fullest. Mm-hmm. And I was able to do that with the show and it really worked. Um, that was one. Blue Sky Boys, the Everly Brothers play by Ken Duncan at Bats into the St. James in Wellington was another. I did a production of Twelfth Night in Wellington, the co-op show, great cast, no set, semi-improvised, no blocking, was completely different every night. That was fantastic. I did Stephen Sondheim's musical Into the Woods at the Watershed Theatre, which was the first production in New Zealand in 94, which was just magic, magical cast, magic production. And Helen and I got married during the run of that show. And we had our wedding reception at the theater while while that show was um, in performance. So it's completely associated with very, very happy memories for me. Mm-hmm. And I did also did sometimes Assassin, Assassins at the Watershed, which is a bleak uh, show about all the people through history who've tried to kill American presidents. It's a musical, but it's amazing writing. And um, I feel we did a really, really good job with that. It didn't sell hugely because again, I think as a proposition, it's a really difficult thing to persuade people to come and see as a Christmas show. <laughs> please, come, please come and engage with these people who wanted exactly. to kill American presidents uh, yeah. during Christmas uh, uh, holidays. 
Yeah, and it finishes with all the assassins in a, in a lineup across the stage shooting the audience. That's the last image of the show. I did a play in Wellington at Bats called Conquest of the South Pole by a German playwright, Manfred Karg, which was about a bunch of unemployed punks who stave off despair by recreating Amundsen's trip to the South Pole in one of their attics. They break into a local um, outdoor supplies shop. And it's about people who are on the verge of madness using their imagination to try and stay sane. Yeah. It is an absolute incredible piece of writing. And I had a wonderful cast and the, the rehearsal process paid off and we used a lot of German and industrial music. It was it was the loudest show I've ever done. It was pure industrial punk. And Sturzen die Neubauten was was you know that that kind of stuff. It was just at the time right up my alley, and I'm still really proud of it. And I would really love because theatre is ephemeral; it only exists in the moment that um, it's in performance. I would love to go back in time and see some of those shows again with. Um, life experience and adult eyes to see if they were as amazing as I remember them being or um, whether they were a bit chonky or, or not. You know, lots of other people who saw them remember them fondly. So I might not be the only one. But as you can tell, that theatre making is kind of my um, spiritual home. And my experience in screen work, you know, which mm -hmm. has been 25 years of yeah. making television and film is an adjunct to that. It's mm -hmm. the craft side of things where I still really, really enjoy it. I love directing, but it's not a spiritual experience for me in the way that theater is. And that's about the shared experience of being in a room, an audience, and the energy that is generated between performer and audience in the moment, which is different mm. every time. That that that's the that's the thing for me the the um the communion in that moment no i mean clearly a great love and fondness for theater and many moments to be proud of i imagine that's also quite tricky in new zealand with this quite a small audience for theater and then if you go even smaller say something like the assassins play and get small and smaller but then yeah you have worked in television which arguably gets a much wider audience um, and you've worked for some really like long running and very well known new zealand tv shows like uh, Outrageous Fortune, of course, Shortland Street. I was really stoked to hear that you did The Almighty Johnsons, which I really enjoyed. But um, from working in television, is there anything that you got to be a part of that maybe you wrote or you helped produce that you were particularly, like, is there a plot, a moment or a character that you worked on that you're particularly proud of and why? There are lots, actually. Um, it's interesting what you say about Outrageous Fortune and liking Almighty Johnsons, because I think Almighty Johnsons was, if anything, ruder than... Um... <laughs> Outrageous I watched fortune. that when I was well into adulthood as opposed yes. to I think Outrageous Fortune came out when I was a teenager and I was yeah, very much like sense. swearing is terrible, let alone yeah. Westies who get drunk <laughs> and all sorts of stuff, crime. And behave badly. Yeah. Um, I, no, I produced the first two seasons of Almighty Johnson's and I, I, I loved it. I was really, really proud of that. Outrageous Fortune was always going to be a hard act to follow and Almighty Johnson's was kind of marketed as being the replacement for Outrageous Fortune, which is a really risky thing to do when the entire country loves Outrageous Fortune and doesn't want something else. And, you know, it never really, it never really got an audience in the same way that Outrageous Fortune had. I lost my job on that after season two because the audience figures weren't big enough. A cautionary mm. tale about network television. Season three rated even more poorly. There was just a season by season decline. And I think one of the reasons that I kind of believe in that was given by the network was that New Zealanders 
cannot see themselves in a supernatural context. New Zealand audiences are really only interested in stuff that they see as being real. Which is such a pity, because that's probably mm. the biggest reason why I enjoyed that show. I was like, this is something I've never seen before, because I think there's not a lot of fantasy based in New Zealand, or at least not since, I don't know, people who wrote some of those classics from childhood. I can't remember any of their names right now. Is mm. it Under the Mountain? Yes. Like kind of those fantastical sort of stories. Almighty Johnson's I really, really loved. I thought it was a great cast. I thought the production had integrity. James Griffin, who who was the creator, his ideas were fantastic. It fed into the show that we made, but it was not mainstream enough. It was too niche for the mainstream audiences that the networks like TV One, Two and Three uh, have to um, capture in order to be able to make enough money to stay um, solvent because obviously selling audiences to advertisers is their core business. There were moments with Outrageous Fortune where, as a director, I was deeply, deeply proud. And um, there was a story in, I think it was beginning of season three, it involved character Van, played by Anthony Starr, and Aurora, played by Claire Chittam. And um, we killed Aurora. I mean, Aurora was, was, was written out in a motorbike accident and... The episodes, it was like, like two or three episodes, dealt with the circumstances leading up to Aurora's death and then Van, um, his grief and inability to cope with the death of his um, beloved. And it was incredibly sad within the context of a comedy. And that's another thing I loved about both Almighty Johnson's and particularly Outrageous Fortune was the juxtaposition of tragedy and comedy. It makes the moving moments that much more powerful, particularly if they're handled truthfully rather than than as send-up. And the cast of Outrageous Fortune were incredibly committed to their performances and those characters. I loved working with them. It was really demanding and there were all kinds of very difficult things we had to deal with. But that story, it touched a real um, nerve for me. Yeah, it was dealing it was dealing with immediate grief. And I had experienced that myself over the loss of my sister. So I was very close to the material that I was directing in that episode. And the actors went out there and took huge risks for their performances. And what we what we made, I think, was astonishing um, television. So that is a is a sequence or a couple of episodes that I'm hugely proud of as a director. The Margaret Mahi series, uh, Madigan's Quest, I still remain really, really proud of. Uh, like Power Rangers, but with a fraction of the budget, it was a complete build from the start. Uh, a world-building fantasy sequence, an amazing cast. I worked with Tracy Collins, who's a production designer on Power Rangers. She was the costume designer on that. Tracy and I have worked together in theatre since 1991, so so we have a long, long history together. Which is another nice thing about um, Power Rangers is that there's that to work together. Long, long history. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So yeah, the, there are there are moments in, in television that resonate really powerfully and that I'm that I'm very, very proud of. I won Best Director Award at the New Zealand TV Awards for Outrageous Fortune one year. That was that was nice. Um, Do you have it in Pride of Place somewhere in your home? Is it like yeah, near you? Back there somewhere. There's a, there's a bunch, <laughs> there's a bunch of them. Oh, <laughs> it's not just one, it's a bunch. Yeah. But yeah, the politics of New Zealand telly is, is really, really hard because there's never enough money to do it properly. You're always making something on the smell of an oily rag. And the problem is, I think, in, in, in the days of Netflix is that to a lot of audience, New Zealand television looks a bit shit. And, and that's simply because... Yeah. 
there isn't the same time or money as the um, as the overseas shows, the best and the very best in the world that um, people get to see. But if you can look beyond the production values, often the writing is really good. The acting can be great, and um, the stories are much more um, relevant to New Zealand audiences often. So I, I feel kind of sad in a way that a lot of New Zealand um, drama is kind of shortchanged by the fa- the circumstances under which it's made and yeah. the way it's perceived. Because, I mean, again, that reminds me of Almighty Johnson's where you've got quite an epic sort of story that you're trying to tell. They're the reincarnations of Norse gods. They've got certain powers. But there's kind of this battle going on where he's trying to find um, his... Frig. Frig, yes, his <laughs> wife. Um, but you don't know who she's been reincarnated as. So it's a lot of fun, but yes, it's quite an epic sort of thing. And it is a New Zealand television show and you're filming it kind of like, you know, he's got flatmates. Exactly. <laughs> They've all got jobs. <laughs> and it's all a bit soapy. I mean, one of the great, one of the brilliant things about um, James's conception with that season was um, that the, despite the fact that they were descended from Norse gods, they were not very, they were all a bit shit. They were not very good at it. Um, the original title was Gods of Norsewood because James wow. grew up in Hawke's Bay and there was a, a, a Norse settlement in the Hawke's Bay, right. Norsewood. But um, as always happens, um, the title got changed to make it something more commercially appealing. So is that Norse settlement where he came up with a story like, what if the yeah. people who settled yes. here? That's oh, right. Fantastic. Uh, and it got shifted to Auckland. And um <laughs> yeah. it was a good idea. Their, their powers were all diluted, like 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 yeah, they um, kind of learned them. Yeah. The god of winter, his talent was making a room slightly colder when he walked into it, and he worked as a refrigerator repairman. You know, it's that that kind of logic. And as his god Braggy, um, god of poetry worked in advertising because yeah. he was the good cop- copywriter you know th- those those kinds of yeah how could um, they apply their godlike powers that are subdued but how could they use them in a modern world yes no it was it's great. fun it was the first place i watched jared turner who is also now in power rangers um which yeah. i was very excited by yeah just a super interesting story um well We've talked for about two hours. Um, you've had <laughs> You're going to very... have to edit this down, aren't oh, you? Oh yeah, I don't know how I'm going to have. I'm going to do that, but it's. I think suffice to say, you've had a long and varied career. And um, some might look at you and think, "Wow, Simon's really got it made. He's really figured it out." He's working on Power Rangers. You're negotiating with Netflix about Power Ranger deals and all sorts of stuff. I guess, firstly, would you agree, or are there still things that you're trying to figure out? After 30 years of being in the biz, you know, you've you've worked, done a ton of work in theater worked on some of the biggest New Zealand TV shows, now working on a huge American TV show. Are there things that you're still trying to figure out? I still want to make theatre work in New Zealand. I still think that we deserve a national theatre company, whatever form that takes. We have national um, arts organisations in every other medium. Why can't we have a national theatre company? Basically, we've seen 30 years of the ind- of the industry basically segmented by lack of funding and regional um, competition for insufficient support. And rather than work together um, as one positive team, the industry has been fractured and there is no option for a sustainable career in the art form anymore. And I just think that's really sad because they used to be back mm. in the 70s and the early 80s. I don't know if it's possible, but I would love to see a national theatre that is of and about and for 
Aotearoa for the for this country. That that's a dream I have. Personally, I would like to stop getting sick with fear before I have to do um, international Zoom calls or um, first days of rehearsals. I get upset stomachs. I can't sleep. I clench up. I come in on sweats. I get very anxious about some mm. things. So I would like to be able to overcome that. And that's just kind of social anxiety, which I've always had. And it doesn't go away. The long, you know, I've been in this industry for many, many years, but I still have to deal with that stuff. In terms of uh, screen, I'd really like to make another feature film uh, mm-hmm. as a director. And I'd like it to be a story that I feel close to and something that I've had a part in generating and something that I am entirely happy with. In the past, I've been a gun for hire director, and that's a bit different to directing something which is your own close to your heart special project. So that is something I would really like to do. And for me, it's about the experience and the process. It's not about being X, Y, or Z. Yes, I'm lucky in that I've been employed for most of my career and I've got I've got a good track record of having done interesting and varied things and I've worked with great people and I, I feel very lucky and privileged to have had all that. But everything I've done has partly because I don't like the social side of things and I don't go to conventions and I don't network and I don't do do the whole schmoozing thing. I never have because I can't do it. No, I can't can't do it. So for me, it's just been about the work and the process of making that I Mm -hmm. love. And as long as I can keep doing that, um, wherever it may be, I think I'll be happy. Thank you, thank you, thank you to Simon for being my final guest for Breakfast Chats. He has been an absolute champ waiting for this episode to come out while I've stumbled along in the editing process. I feel like this is a nice way to close Breakfast Chats out for now. And so thank you, dear listeners and supporters, aka my family and friends, who have paid attention to this wee side project of mine. I've learned a lot and am extremely grateful for the excuse to talk to so many kind, generous, interesting and intriguing people. I think there has been something valuable to hear in every single chat I've had. If you'd still like to follow me, I am Kim Can Draw on Instagram, where I post my illustrations and other freelance work. I'm also starting up an online stationery store, so you can follow me for that as well. But for now, this is goodbye. As I so often do to close out my blog posts, newsletters, and now this. Until next time, Yehoa Ma.